Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Big tech has money to burn. From flying cars to quantum computers, gene editing to space travel, the world's most powerful companies are on a record-breaking investment spree. But as they race to secure their places in the future, are the giants of today squeezing out their potential challengers? You're listening to Money Talks from The Economist, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy and the world of business. I'm Rachna Shahn-Bog and this week we're exploring big tech's new frontiers. It's almost existential for us that we're constantly thinking about what's coming next, which is a (laughs) notoriously hard problem. We'll look at where the tech giants are placing their bets and the new technologies they believe will shape the future. If you go into biotech or if you go into robotics or if you go into climate tech, whether they are going to be the ones with the competitive edge, I think, is a much more open question. And we'll ask whether they're fueling the next world-changing breakthrough or, as regulators worry, smothering the competition. With success and the market power that comes from it also comes responsibility. A responsibility not to misuse your muscle. Thank you, everyone, for joining us to talk about this exciting milestone for Microsoft, Activision Blizzard, and the entire gaming industry. Satya Nadella, the CEO of Microsoft, has been shopping. This morning, we announced that we will acquire Activision Blizzard in an all-cash transaction valued at $68.7 billion. Even for a company with a market capitalization of $2.3 trillion, that's a lot of money. This will be the largest acquisition in our history. And at one fell swoop, it makes Microsoft the third largest gaming company in the world by revenue, behind Sony and Tencent. And we are investing to create a thriving gaming ecosystem. The gaming world is expanding rapidly. Worldwide revenues shot up by a quarter in the first year of the pandemic to nearly $180 billion. And Activision Blizzard brings Microsoft a key slice of that pie. Its blockbuster games like Call of Duty and Candy Crush are played by hundreds of millions of people worldwide. But listen closely to how Mr Nadella talked about the acquisition and it's clear his sights were set further ahead. Removing these barriers will only become more important as the digital and physical worlds come together and the metaverse platform develops. The word metaverse was mentioned a dozen times on a short call. This isn't just about what people are playing today. It's a glimpse of Microsoft's vision of the future. If you listen to the way the purchase has been framed by kind of Microsoft executives, they're talking about this very much within the context of the metaverse. 
Guy Scriven writes about technology and business for The Economist. And that kind of focus on, on this new technologies fits a pattern that you see across the big five American tech firms. So that's Amazon, uh, Meta, Google, Microsoft and Apple. And I've been digging into the data uh, around innovation in the big tech firms to try to get a sense of how they're spending their money and what technologies they're betting on. Now, the tech giants have always talked a big game on innovation. How do you measure how innovative they really are? Well, the spending of these kind of big firms is basically a black box. Um, although a huge amount of money goes into it, we, we, we don't know exactly how that's divvied up. Um, but what you can do is, is look at kind of other indicators to get a bit of a sense of that. So you can look at acquisitions such as uh, Microsoft's purchase of Activision Blizzard. You can look at how they're kind of investing their money through their kind of venture capital arms, the trends in their kind of hiring data and and who they employ through looking at kind of job ads and data on, you know, platforms like LinkedIn. And you can also look at kind of their patent applications as well. But the clearest, the clearest signal of all that they are really kind of starting to focus much more on innovation than in the past is their R&D spending, which they do publish. And that has bloomed in recent years. How much are we talking here? How much are they investing? It's about $150 billion a year that they're spending in on R&D, which is, to put it in context, is about a quarter of total R&D spending across America, so kind of public and private spending. And then there's another $150 billion or so of capex on top of that. Um, and these figures are increasing fast. So uh, R&D spending among the big five tech firms has increased by about a third in the past few years. And the amount that they're spending is huge in comparison to other kind of American firms. The big five invest about half of their cash flow from operations in either kind of R&D or, or growth capex. And that compares to about 6% for your typical company in the S&P 500. The scale is pretty mind-boggling. Where's all this money going? Well, what's really striking about the spending patterns is the breadth of different technologies that the big tech firms are investing in. And to get a sense of this, I spoke to Kevin Scott, who's the chief technology officer at Microsoft and oversees the direction of all of their kind of most innovative work. There's operating systems, programming languages, uh, cloud, business applications, collaboration platforms, what people are calling metaverse now, but sort of mixed reality platforms, what we have been calling things uh, artificial intelligence, like basically all of these things are now building blocks for the sorts of applications and businesses that people want to build. And so, you know, when we're thinking about the frontier, it's almost existential for us that we're constantly thinking about what's coming next, which is a notoriously hard problem. So if you kind of step back a bit from the data and, and take a look at the kind of broader patterns that you see, you can you can kind of make out that there are probably three big focuses. And that is the metaverse, uh, self-driving cars and broadly defined healthcare. So that's anything from wearable kind of gadgets to gene editing. Let's take the metaverse first. Just how much of the big five spending is focused on making the virtual become reality? 
Well, uh, they're all thinking about it, as you can tell from what Nadella said about this latest acquisition. But the kind of clearest signal you get from the data on this is obviously from Meta, uh, formerly Facebook. You know, Mark Zuckerberg has said that he's very much kind of pivoting towards the, the virtual reality space. Now we have a new North Star to help bring the metaverse to life. And we have a new name that reflects the full breadth of what we do and the future that we want to help build. From now on, we're going to be metaverse first, not Facebook first. And whilst it's certainly true that some of the spending that Facebook was already doing may now just be kind of relabeled as metaverse spending to make it sound a bit sexier, it's certainly kind of a lot of money either, either way. If you look at all the acquisitions that the big five tech firms have, have made on metaverse-related firms, so firms that do something in the, in the fields of kind of augmented or virtual reality, you can see that uh, eight of the 13 acquisitions were done by Meta. Meta is advertising for many more jobs related to kind of AR and, and VR. And we think about three quarters of Meta's patent applications in the last few years mention either kind of AR or VR. And so even though lots of people criticised uh, Zuckerberg as renaming his firm in order to draw attention away from kind of other problems that Facebook had, they do seem to be making kind of a genuine effort to shift focus towards everything metaverse related. How does Meta's obsession with the metaverse compare with the other tech giants? I mean, broadly speaking, I would say that the other tech giants are kind of spreading their bets a bit more. If you look at kind of Microsoft, Amazon and Google, they are expanding their kind of cloud computing capacity and also thinking about artificial intelligence. And so they're increasing their ability to, to mine data. Another area is uh, kind of healthcare. Last April, Microsoft bought Nuance Communications for about $20 billion, which is a kind of healthcare cloud platform. Um, Google bought, bought Fitbit recently. And you see you see other bits of this as well. So if you look at the acquisitions of Google's venture capital arms. You can see that a huge number of investments have been made into all sorts of kind of biotech companies, including those that do kind of gene editing and, and drug discovery. What about on the self-driving cars front? Now, breakthroughs here have been promised forever. What's going on? Yeah, so they're kind of interested for different reasons. Kevin Scott stressed that Microsoft was kind of less interested in the, in the hardware side, the kind of physical cars, and uh, much more interested in producing the, the systems that run them. Are we going to build our own autonomous cars? No, we, we are not an auto manufacturer. That said, we have a whole bunch of technologies that are extremely relevant to people who are building autonomous vehicles. So we have a big partnership with Cruise, which is purchased by GM for supporting their efforts to get to uh, an autonomous vehicle. And we were thinking about autonomy like very broadly. It's not just cars, it's drones and delivery vehicles and fulfillment center technologies, you know, and, and, and. The way Amazon has got a kind of finger in this pie is uh, as the kind of biggest shareholder of, of Rivian, which is a electric a vehicle maker with an interest in kind of autonomous vehicles, which went public in October. Apple have a kind of ongoing project, which they've had for quite a few years now on autonomous vehicles called Project Titan. We sort of see it as the mother of all AI projects. It's probably one of the most difficult AI projects actually to, to work on. 
Google, meanwhile, have a, a kind of stake in the self-driving car race through Waymo, which is which is a company that came out of kind of Google X, their moonshot division. Apple and Google see this more as a consumer product. That interface between the driver and the car is is, is the kind of prize here, where you, they can they can squeeze kind of a few more hours out of your week and place their kind of apps and software in the car for you to interact with. So what does all this add up to then? What's all this spending going to achieve? And are we about to see the dawning of a new great age of innovation? Well, broadly, I think this is a good thing. There's lots of reasons to be optimistic. The the big tech firms, which used to sit on their cash and hoard it, are now kind of ploughing money into innovation and uh, new areas. There's a recent study from Goldman Sachs basically arguing that the, the biggest driver of productivity growth up until 2016 was manufacturing. But since then, it's been the kind of technology sector. So that's a, that's a kind of bit of evidence that this might be good for the economy as a whole. And when you talk to people like Kevin Scott, it's easy to see why kind of pouring money into emerging tech is, is, is broadly speaking, a good thing to do. I like a vision of the world where tech companies are building things that other people use. And like, we do not have the belief in our head that we're so smart that we're going to solve every problem uh, in the world. We just need a huge diversity of people globally to be equipped with technology that they need to solve their problems. The one worry is whether the incumbents of today use their power to kind of cement their dominance over the technologies, you know, of the future. And it's an area that regulators are are looking at kind of ever more closely. I think that's a really good place to pause, because in a minute we'll be discussing these issues further with Margarita Vestaya, the EU's competition chief. Before we do, remember that with a subscription you can get full access to The Economist's world-leading analysis. There's a special offer for Money Talks listeners at economist.com slash podcast offer. Among the many brilliant offerings in this week's issue, you can read about the battle to dominate decentralised finance and find out the answer to a question I think we've all probably asked ourselves when faced with a hefty restaurant bill. Does tipping make for better service? Economist.com slash podcast offer is your link and you can find it in the notes for this episode. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. That tension that Guy identified between allowing big tech to help supercharge innovation without giving them total domination of those new fields is one of the key challenges policymakers are grappling with today. Our business editor, Jan Piotrowski, has been talking to a lot of the decision makers weighing up these competing concerns. Jan, welcome back on the show. Uh, thank you, Rachna. Back by popular demand, as I understand it, um, and also in person. Well, it's always nice not to be on my own in the studio staring at a screen. 
So Guy's talked us through the work that he's been doing. And I think the debate picks up really neatly a lot of the threads that you and I were discussing last week about the relationship between business and the state. How are policymakers thinking about these trade-offs? Yeah, I think um, it is interesting because they're clearly afraid of the dominance that a lot of the large tech companies are wielding, both sides of the Atlantic. And also in China, they are pursuing antitrust cases. They're investigating a lot of deals involving those large companies. They are cracking down with fines. I mean, in China, I think just last year alone, Trustbusters levied something on the order of $3.5 billion in fines against China's tech giants, including a record fine against Alibaba, which is the big e-commerce behemoth. So there is a lot going on, both rhetorically, but also in terms of concrete actions. And if we look at the EU, the figurehead there is clearly Margarita Vestaya, who's in charge of competition policy. Now, you've been speaking to her. Yes, she's very interesting. I mean, she's the person with most power over European antitrust policy. And she has been quite forthright and forceful in pushing to, to try and limit the power of the big American tech conglomerates. And I've been speaking to Commissioner Vestaya uh, both as part of my reporting for the special report on, on business and the state, but I also caught up with her a few days ago to speak specifically about this subject. Margrethe Vestaya, welcome to Money Talks. Well, thank you very much. I really enjoyed our conversation in Brussels. It was really, really good. Now, it's, uh, it's a busy year. Why don't we um, start with a, with a broad question? You're in charge, basically, of the EU's competition policy, or certainly its implementation. How would you define the state of competition and market concentration in the EU and maybe globally as well? Well, the, the basic state is good, but it is also work in progress because markets are changing as they digitalize. And we have seen quite a lot of concentration over the last two decades, more in the U.S., uh, but obviously, the different markets, they are very different. In China, a lot of really big state-owned businesses, also uh, a very concentrated market. So we have a very strong starting point for getting it right. But we still have work to do in order for fully digitalized markets to be competitive, to be vibrant, to deliver the best possible push for innovation. So what is the role of, of antitrust policy within that compared with, say, regulation? Well, the two needs to work hand in hand. For instance, uh, in digital, we had a number of competition cases, not one, not two, three Google cases, Amazon cases, you know, all these individual cases. And yet we saw that something was more systemic which is why we now have the Digital Markets Act. We see something when we do individual competition cases, but we also see that if there is a tendency for this to be systemic, then we need regulation to come in and work with the case-by-case -case law enforcement. There appears to be a philosophical shift in, in antitrust. Um, for the past 40 years, it's basically revolved around some version of the consumer welfare standard. So particularly, you know, Business practices or, or mergers or other deals are bad if they, they end up raising prices for consumers. The EU has always looked beyond prices alone, and it's, it's considered quality and choice as well. Are there considerations beyond price, quality and choice that, that ought to be taken into account? Well, what I see in particular is uh, questions of innovation popping up. So I think we, have, we are trying to sort of unfold 
this landscape of price, choice, quality and innovation and how the different things come together. But also that that price uh, is to some degree also renewed because we see and prices that are not paid with your credit card coming in, but a price for a service paid by, by data. And by data playing these new roles as a de facto currency, but also a currency that then works as a source for innovation and as a barrier to entry in some markets. When you look at the rethinking of antitrust policy that's happening across the Atlantic in America, the people who have been installed by Joe Biden to the top trust-busting jobs there, Lena Khan uh, at the Federal Trade Commission, Jonathan Cantor at the DOJ's antitrust division, there's Tim Wu advising um, President Biden in the White House, their approach to antitrust is possibly sort of even slightly broader than that, Is appears to be to, to try and prevent market concentration because market concentration in itself is bad. They look at other factors, such as its effect on wages, its effect on smaller firms, and inflation. Do you think that this broad, really broad perspective is the right way to think about competition policy, or should its focus really be slightly more focused, as it were? I find this a really difficult and intriguing question, because sometimes you see big companies coming from organic growth. They are successful because people like their products, they like their services. And then I have a reservation to say, should I then be the judge that this is now too big? But with success and the market power that comes from it also comes responsibility. A responsibility not to misuse your muscle not to misuse your power to make it more difficult for others. And that is also what is reflected in the Digital Markets Act, that giant companies can be labeled gatekeeper, and the gatekeeper then gets the proper responsibility as someone who is, who is uh, deciding should the gate be open or closed. Uh, that being said, I think it's really interesting to, to continue the discussion about to what degree does size matter on some of the fundamentals in a market? Because we are completely dependent in fighting climate change and enabling a digital transition from all kinds of companies. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it, it seems to me that there is this, this problem of, sort of trying to determine exactly what sort of market structure would be most innovative. Because on the one hand, there is an argument that the large companies with m many resources are able to invest more in competition. So yes, there is a risk of obviously of, of companies becoming lazy incumbents, but there is also that offsetting variable. Well, first of all, they're afraid of each other, <laughs> which leads them to, to invest a bit more and encroach on each other's turf increasingly. Um, and on the other, they're actually pretty paranoid about being upstaged by by smaller competitors. I mean, we're seeing that now with, with TikTok and Facebook, right? I mean, so it, how do you go about determining whether some business practice or deal is harmful to something as difficult to pin down as innovation? Well, if you, if you had the drive and you always sort of said, innovation is my, is my way forward. That is how I stay big. This is how I make money. I, w I don't think I would have competition cases. Because the competition cases, they, they basically always about 
making the most of what you have already by keeping innovative products out. And I think that is at least pointing the finger to, to that old truth that big and lazy at least sometimes come together. And, and when you see all the acquisitions, there has been, you know, like a shopping spree, small innovative businesses in Europe being bought by big tech as a sort of distributed uh, innovation. You know, big tech, they don't take any risks, but if they see something interesting, they buy it. Uh, and I think that is another suggestion that, that you need a diverse business community. I think it's important to have big companies who can invest big, who have a long-term perspective. But I think it is as important to have smaller companies who will, you know, challenge, who will bite, who will be out there to say, we can do better because we have a different kind of, of curiosity. We have a different drive. Now, the one thing that's sort of, there is a little bit of a tension between some societal goals like combating climate change or ensuring national or sort of, you know, continental security. You do need sort of some big firms, some national or, or continental, you know, European champions. The EU needs its own source of, of clean technologies, needs to be able to make its own computer chips, capital-intensive businesses, which cannot be done by small, innovative companies. So I see a tension there between, on the one hand, the importance of competition policy and in ensuring innovation, and the reality that, that some of this innovation, you know, needs big, powerful actors. Well, for me, it's not a tension. It's about finding the right balance. In some areas, we need innovation, but the risk for the individual business is too big. And here, I think it's obvious that you should have more businesses coming together, member states, public funding coming in, say, we will, we will take part of that risk. I think that is absolutely needed because the goal we have in our industrial policy is that European industry should lead the green and the digital transformation. So instead of sort of old school, let me cuddle my favorites, we say, let us challenge you to take this forward and to, to produce leadership in these two really strategic areas. And the second thing is that with what we have learned about supply chains during the pandemic, we also see that Europe should play a different role when it comes to the semiconductor global ecosystem. We should have more production here. We should have more research here. But of course, when taxpayers' money are involved, it should be the best possible bargain. It should not be a subsidy race. Because there is a difference between a subsidy race and a public subsidy that is proportionate and necessary. And, and I think we can achieve the latter. Yeah, it's, it's you know, sort of history does not offer a lot of very heartening examples of how that can work. So there is a very tricky balancing mm. act to be to be struck. So you said you had a busy start to the year. So, so for the last question, I just wanted to ask you, what are the biggest challenges in the foreseeable future? So over the next 12 months, what, what's on your agenda well, we have quite a number of, of individual competition cases. Uh, we have three Apple cases. Uh, we have a, a Google investigation. And then, of course, we have legislation that we want to make happen. The Digital Markets Act in particular. In, in my wider portfolio, we are working with, with the CHIPS Act, how to enable first-of-a-kind production facilities to be established uh, in Europe, and then partnering up sort of uh, outside of Europe. The Trade and Technology Council that I co-lead uh, is also high priority that we are out there because 
it is now that we push on for, for solid competition law enforcement to sort of fully take in what happens in a fully digitalized economy. We need to digitalize as well. That is uh, happening as we speak. And that, of course, is a really exciting challenge to be part of. So that sounds like an incredible uh, amount of work. So we uh, all the more appreciate the time you have given us today. Thank you so much, Margrethe Festeyer. It has been my pleasure to be with you. Wonderful. Bye-bye. Yeah, and I thought what was really interesting about what Margarita Vestaya was saying there is the sort of balance that must be struck between, you know, regulation policy versus antitrust, the role of private markets versus public subsidies. There's lots of difficult lines that need to be walked carefully there. Do you think she gets the balance right? I, mean, I think we'll see what that looks like in, in practice when, first of all, when the pieces of legislation actually materialise the Digital Services Act and the Digital Markets Act, which are probably about to be passed in the coming months. You know, you have to remember when you look back at GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulation, which is a sort of the landmark privacy bill that the European Parliament passed a few years ago, it was basically aimed at the American giants. But they, with their resources, were also the most able to rearrange their affairs in a way that, that were compliant. On antitrust cases... I think, again, you know, there are a few which, which sort of raise eyebrows among some observers of competition policy because they concern, for instance, Facebook's or Meta's acquisition of Customer, which is a, another software company, which doesn't actually have all that much business in Europe, but it's being challenged on antitrust grounds precisely because there's a fear that Meta might gain an, an innovative edge. And so there are instances where where antitrust is sort of is, is pushing the, the boundary of what it used to do in many ways, which I think are, you know, possibly going a little bit too far and being a little bit too dismissive of the innovation that all these big companies are trying to create. And so what do you expect the impact of all this investment that we're seeing to be on market concentration and competition amongst the big tech firms? So the argument that many critics of, of big tech make and the people who worry most about the concentration of power within those companies is that all of this, all of the future innovation will in one way or another be based on data. And these companies peddle in data or data-related services. And as such, they have an edge in whatever sort of domain you might want to pursue. So even if you move away from the sort of consumer internet, you know, if you go into biotech or if you go into robotics or if you go into climate tech, I'm not sure that's necessarily true because crunching biological data is, is important to biological advances. But there's a lot of other things that are also important whether they are going to be the ones with the competitive edge, I think is a much more open question. I thought it was striking that Margarita Vestaya there talked about sort of data as a currency of sorts. But the other part of this is what's happening with competitors and whether there are kind of other independent sources of innovation in those sectors. Yeah, I think um, it depends on which particular domain you're looking at specifically. I mean, you know, for instance, with self-driving cars, 
you would have thought that somebody like Google, who's been at it for a very long time, would have a massive edge. I mean, first of all, the problem is proving much more difficult than a lot of the early advocates and boosters made it sound a few years ago. But also, you look at the company which has made a fair amount of progress is Tesla. I mean, it is now a big tech firm and a trillion-dollar company, but it does not come from the, the data processing side of things. And so you do see that there is room, clearly, for others to make a dent. And that is all before you start thinking about China, which is also investing an awful lot in, in a lot of these same areas, or indeed the whole crypto space, you know, decentralized finance, Web3, and all those areas which are you know, trying to challenge the tech giants really much more fundamentally than merely on their own turf. And it's proving quite popular with a lot of users and, and also a lot of investors. Jan, thank you very much. Pleasure to have you on Second Week Running. Pleasure, and I'm looking forward to coming back on shortly. And thank you for listening to Money Talks. While you're with us, please take a moment to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It makes all the difference. You can also write to us at podcast.economist.com. The producer is Amika Shortino-Nolan, Nico Ralfast is our sound engineer, and the editor is Sandra Schmorelli. I'm Rachna Scharnberg, and in London, this is The Economist. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.